Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who knows you don't go swimming with Phil Collins. He is the captain. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking Magic Hat Number no. 9 Not Quite Pale Ale. This is a sort of dry, sort of crisp and refreshing Not Quite Pale Ale with notes of fruit and floral hop bitterness. Garage grade 3 and a quarter bottle caps out of 5. And here are some people that I would like to think that as Drew Barrymore would say are truly magical. First up we have Kitty in Broad Ripple, Indiana. And a big shout out to Katie in Brooklyn, New York. Next up, Captain, we have a cheers that's going out to Robert in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. And a big we like your jib to Cat. Meow. In Adelaide, Australia. And here's a cheers to Jennifer in Newtown, Connecticut, who says she has listened to every episode of True Crime Garage and every episode of Off the Record. And last but certainly not least, we have Jill and her son in Gardner, Maine. Cheers to everyone who went to TrueCrimeGarage.com and contributed to this week's beer fun. Yeah, stop the show right now and go to the website because it is time. Not only can you support the show, but you get something in return. We have the pre-order going on for Ban the Tan Sedan. And for our more talented listeners... Keep listening and go to the website and check out the new the new t-shirt. I'll tell you what, Captain. Look, it's just a good way to support the show, but you get something in return. We right? did ban the van. Ban the van. Ban the camper. We did the creepy camper. Creepy camper. And now ban the tan sedan, which <laughs> out of the three, 
This one's my favorite. I love all three of them, but this one's my favorite. Make sure you check it out at truecrimegarage.com. Is that enough of the business, well, Captain? No, the funny thing is we had a listener one time say, I drive a white van. What's your deal? And I said, <laughs> it's just a joke. And he went, oh, I thought you guys were like serious. I'm like, no, it's just a joke. It's just a joke. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Each evening, as the day slips away and the sun slides down the west sky, we lock our doors and we put our children to bed. There is a sense of calm and safety as we turn off our lights, count those sheep, and dream of what's to come. But sometimes, evil slips into our home, out of the night, and past the locked doors. Sometime in the small hours of June 6, 1986, that is just what happened. A sleeping child was awakened by a shadowy figure that entered the bedroom. The room was almost totally dark, but still, she could see something. What was it? Who was it? The terrified child watched in silence as the man slowly approached the bed. Now, he was standing right next to her still sleeping sister. The man very carefully lifted the little sister up, turned, and walked out. Was this real, the girl thought? Was this some kind of dream? She turned and looked to the empty spot in the bed where her sister should be. Then her eyes moved to the door to their tiny bedroom. Where was the man? Where was her sister? And is he coming back? Frightened, she remained silent. She didn't want the man to hear her. She didn't want him to see her. She lifted the blanket up over her head, completely covering her entire body. She laid there under the blankets, silent and still, her eyes shut tight. Until the morning, when she heard her mother ask, where's your sister? The little girl, still scared, said, she's gone. The man with the magic hat took her.
Jessica Suzanne Gutierrez was born on December 3rd, 1981 to mother Deborah Gutierrez and her father, David. Deborah and David divorced in 1983 and David moved away. Now, according to Deborah, David had a green card so he could reside in the U.S., but had no custodial rights to their children. As a result, Deborah was left alone in Lexington, South Carolina to raise her four young children. This all on a postal service worker's salary. Jessica, to all of her family and friends, was simply Jessie, a cute nickname for this cute little four-year-old girl. Jessie had an older sister, Rebecca, who went by Becky. She was six years old. The two shared a bedroom and a bed in the family's trailer home. There are four kids, as we said. So Jessica also had another sister named Kim, who was 10 years old, and then an eight-year-old brother. It was tight quarters, to say the least, in a trailer for the family of five. When our story takes place, Deborah had quite recently broken things off with her boyfriend and told him, hey, buddy, it's time to move out. It's time for you to leave. She claims that he abused alcohol and was extremely possessive and jealous. It was not a good fit. She did not need that in her life. So now it is just her and the kids. On the night of Thursday, June 5th, the Gutierrez family shared BLTs for dinner after working in the yard. Deborah painted little Jessica's nails for her. Jessie wanted to sleep with her mom that night, but she had been allowed to do so the night before. It sounds to me, Captain, like this is kind of a reoccurring musical chairs, so to speak, where we have four young kids, small quarters, and one of them always wants to sleep in mom's room. Now, Jessie had taken slept in there the night before, and her older brother had an ear infection. He wasn't feeling well, so Deborah opted to let the boy stay with her and put Jessie to bed with her sister. As said, Jessie and Becky shared a bed in the kids' room, and their older sister Kim was also in the room with the girls. Deborah did not notice anything unusual that night. It was business as usual. She put the kids to bed and went to bed herself in her own room. She says that everyone was shut down around 1130, specifically meaning she saw Jessica asleep in her bed at this time, 1130 p.m. Nothing out of the ordinary happened until the next morning. This is when she heard Becky calling out around 9 a.m and asking if they could have cereal for breakfast. When Deborah left her room, she walked into the living room area of the trailer home. Now, this is where things get strange, because she was shocked to find that the front door is wide open, there are like papers all scattered about this area, and the screen and the curtains to one of the windows had been forcibly removed from the living room window. This is in the rear of the trailer. The other thing that is odd to her was that the dog was found, the family dog was found in the house, in the trailer at that time. That might seem like a weird statement. My guess here, Captain, is what we're talking about is a dog that typically would sleep outside of the trailer. But now with the door open, found its way inside. And just to be clear, you're saying the trailer door is open. 
the front door, let's call it. The main door, yeah. And then we have a screen and a curtain from one of the family room's windows that is removed. And then we have a dog that possibly sleeps outside, is now inside the trailer. Yes, this woman, Deborah, she's waking up and she's finding all kinds of things that are not as they were when she went to bed the night before. Now, walking into the girl's room, Deborah asks where Jesse was. She doesn't see the little girl. Her sister, Becky, answered, saying, quote, she's gone. The man with the magic hat and beard came and took her last night. Deborah started looking around for her daughter. This, this answer that she gets from her other daughter, Becky, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to her. Uh, it's frightening. It's, it's frightening. Yes. It's very frightening. When I first heard it, I was, it was, it was answer, frightening to yeah, me. The answer you want to get is, I don't know. And that's normally the answer you would get, right? Yeah. But not, oh, by the way, this guy with the magic beard and magic hat took her. Right. Right. So now we have a mother who's con- confused, I think more so than scared at this moment. She's looking under the bed in the closet. She goes outside. Uh, she's even looking under the trailer itself. Unfortunately, Jessica, Jesse is nowhere to be seen. Now the confusion turns to panic. So she's frantic and a bit upset too at this time. And she's pushing Becky about what she could have witnessed. She was understandably a little harsh with the little six-year-old. She wanted to know, if this is true, why didn't you scream for help? Why didn't you run and come and get me? Right. Again, her story just sounded crazy to Deborah. Yeah, but it's so crazy that it's like, it doesn't, look, we have a missing daughter and she's saying that I saw a guy take him. Um, and she's describing this individual the best she can, mm-hmm. but magic hat, what does that mean? Is it, you know, to me, I think possibly like a wizard's hat. Yeah. Um, so almost like a pointy top, but how does she describe? Or, or a top hat. A lot of people, uh, reference, you know, that magicians will wear a yeah, top pull, hat. Yeah. Pull the rabbit out of the hat. We have a mother who is confused, starting to become awfully scared, frightened that her, her daughter is not where she's supposed to be. She's asking the six-year-old daughter who's two years older than the missing girl, what could have happened? The answer is not making any sense to her. Again, Becky would only repeat over and over again that she, what she had said before about the man in the magic hat came and took her sister. And she said that she offers up a little more detail as the panic sets in saying, Jesse stayed asleep when this man picked her up. Becky said that she was too scared to do anything and she didn't remember falling back asleep. The way that I think this works, Captain, is from my understanding from Becky's statements, is at some point in the middle of the night, that's the other crucial thing here. We don't really have any reference of time other than sometime after 1130 when Deborah saw her children sleeping and went to bed herself, right. and then 9 a.m. when she woke up to greet her daughter Becky and talk about breakfast and notice that all of this bizarre stuff is going on. Sometime in that time frame, according to Becky, the man with a beard and a magic hat came into their bedroom and took her sister. She says that 
she woke up and saw this man enter the room. He goes over to the side of the bed where, where Jesse is and without even waking the child picks her up and carries her out of the room with her, with Jesse's head, like up near his shoulder. She is terrified. She doesn't know who this man is. She doesn't know what's going on. Mind you, she's six years old. I right, mean, and, that, and that's the other problem here is that she's six, would have a hard time telling you what time it was or being able to look at a clock, for one, but then also, like, just as an adult, you can look outside, and sometimes there's there's lights on from other houses, so it might look a little bit earlier in the morning than it is, or you might be able to tell that the sun is uh, slowly coming up, and so that would give us more of a reference point. Was it closer to the 1130 mark, or was it closer to uh, the 8 o'clock mark where everybody's waking up? Well, and in often times, there's no good reason to even put a clock in into the bedroom of small children. So very likely, there may not have been one, and this poor girl right. is so afraid of what she saw and what she probably likely doesn't even really understand or comprehend what just really happened that out of fear, she pulls the covers up over her head and she's just hoping nothing bad happens to her. She's just hoping whatever this is goes away, or maybe it was just a bad dream. Right. And it being the middle of the night, she very likely fell back asleep at some time, but she, she says even to this day, she doesn't remember, doesn't recall falling back asleep. Right. And so I think a question becomes, if we want to try to narrow down that time frame a little bit better, is what do we have with inside our, our means that we can even determine any length of time? Obviously, she's six years old, so we can't really go too much. We can't, you know, simple questions like, did you see the sun coming up? Might not matter in this case. But what we do know is we have a dog that is normally outside that's inside. How often does this dog have to go out? before it actually uses the restroom, how how potty trained is the dog? Uh, did the dog go to the bathroom on the floor anywhere? Well, the dog could have went back outside. The The door is open. The The dog, from my understanding, lives outside and made its way into the house. All right. So, okay, my great detective work is already shut down. Here's where I would go with this. If I, if I were trying to close the gap a little bit, because what we have here, Captain, is a time frame of nine and a half hours, right? From 11.30 to 9 a.m. That's too big of a window that nobody's going to be comfortable with. If I were to try to narrow this down, I would probably put the window of time at six hours. Thinking about midnight as my, my place marker there. Because here's the thing. With the window open, the curtains off forcibly off of the window it doesn't sound to me like this is a cat burglar like a super stealthy dude right it sounds to me like there was a little bit of commotion we're talking about a trailer we're not talking about a mcmansion somewhere this would have been close quarters i want enough of a buffer in time that we have deborah the responsible mother who has fallen asleep she, you know, this noise didn't, didn't wake her from her, her sleep and get her to run out of her room. So, and we don't have any eyewitnesses that saw somebody coming or going from the trailer that night. 
No, we don't. And the other thing that I, I would I would also kind of cap it at 6 a.m. because roughly that would be about uh, sunrise mm-hmm. that next morning. And really all we have is the very vague description that is given, provided to us by the older sister, Becky, who again is just six and probably doesn't comprehend everything that's going on. She is reacting and observing out of fear. So that's going to cloud everything. She's not thinking, oh, I should make note of of about what time it is or if the sun was coming up or not. Right. The other thing, too. It's just sad that she wasn't able to run to her mother's room and, and, and say, hey, somebody took her, you know, and, and that would help out, obviously. But obviously, when you're six years old, well, it's that idea that you see the boogeyman in your room and if I just cover up and and, and he can't see me, then then I'm going to be protected. When all of us sit and think about the dozens of things in our lives that we would have done differently, none of them compare to what this girl, what the regret she has for that night of not notifying anybody, not being able to leave her bed. Now, Deborah calls the police and the responding authority was the Lexington County Sheriff's Department. This is run by Sheriff James Metz. The deputies responded to the scene and searched the trailer. They searched the perimeter and all of the surrounding areas. Now, it's worth noting here that this mobile home was not located in a trailer park. This doesn't help us for possible eyewitnesses. Right. This this hinders everything. Yeah. yeah, this is not in a trailer park. Rather, it is on a secluded private lot near the town of Red Bank. Investigators branched out to look in ab- abandoned buildings and other structures in the area. This would this is something that's necessary to do, but also would lead me to believe that they they might be working under the premise that this girl may have just wandered off. Meanwhile, Deborah was interviewed at the sheriff's department. Mm -hmm. She tells the deputies the same story that Becky told her that morning and additional interviews with Sheriff Metz over the next few days. She also said that immediately she suspected her recent ex-boyfriend had taken Jesse. She had no proof. It was just really a gut feeling. The difficult thing about that, though, Captain, is if Becky was able to see the face of the man that took her sister clearly enough to identify that he has a beard. Again, we don't have any description of what type of beard is this. Is this a big one of those big ZZ top deals? Right. Or is this a uh, a captain and colonel close to the chin beard? Mm hmm. And if if it's a ZZ Top deal, then you don't really need to be able to see this guy's face much at all. Or, or is it even a beard? Is it a type of mask or something? That's true. But what I'm trying to point out here, I think, is that it's clear to me that while the mother may have a gut feeling that the ex-boyfriend was involved, Becky would have been able to identify this man as the ex-boyfriend. Ah, maybe not. Because maybe uh, again, well, maybe, if he was wearing he a disguise, a, that's yeah, true. He has a goofy hat on and and something on his face. It doesn't have to be a a fake beard or it, like I said, it could just have been a mask. And and she didn't 
she wasn't able to get the details of it because it was a dark room. It wasn't like the but, lights were all on. But but the other thing though too is clearly she does not recognize him to be anybody that she knows. Yeah, but hold on a second. Six year old, right? How many times do families have somebody in a family dress up like Santa Claus at a family party and the kids sit on the Santa Claus's lap and say, I want no, this. I, you know. No, I get what you're saying. If, 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 if I drove up to your house in a different car and in disguise, you might not, as an adult, might not recognize me. Right. What, I'm, what I'm saying is Becky is not saying Joe Smith took my sister or Uncle Johnny took my sister. Right. The description she's providing is saying that she did not recognize the person who took her sister, regardless of why that may be. Right. His appearance, we're not we're not saying it could not have been somebody she knew. We're saying that that's not what the kid, the only eyewitness that we have, she's not stating that. Right. But what we also have going on here is that Sheriff Metz is skeptical of Deborah's story about an intruder wearing a strange hat who was heard by no one who had silently taken away this child. And he and his deputies were apparently suspicious enough that, that Deborah herself had something to do with Jesse's appearance. We've seen this in other cases mm-hmm. where something happened, something went wrong right. with the child. Mm-hmm. And now we have somebody who was supposed to be responsible for the child they have to cover it up. They have to come up with some kind of story. Uh, specifically, when we covered Dewan Sims' case, right? We have a mother who who claims that she took her son to a shopping mall, and then says it, somebody took him while we were in the mall. And security and police review the the security tapes and camera footage. They never see the boy with the mom. So it, it's not out of bounds for law enforcement to be skeptical of a story of a woman of a, a child taken in the night first of all that's a very rare abduction well a, and a it's child also, taken from their home in the middle of the night right and then the fact that a kid is taken in a room with other children mm-hmm. right you know so then you have a scenario if if the mother is pointing towards the ex-boyfriend and they're going, well, the kid didn't recognize this individual's, so it could have been her, her boyfriend dressed up, or it could be her dressed up like, mm. like somebody else. Because of the sheriff's department, because of their suspicions that something else may have happened to the little girl and that Deborah was hiding something, they decided that what we're going to do here is we're going to tap Deborah's phone. This would be for two reasons, and they've not publicly stated this. I'm giving my opinion here. You're going to tap the phone for two reasons. One, so the authorities could hear if Deborah was colluding with someone, if there was something going on and she confided in somebody that something actually happened to the little girl. Right. This is also in... Deborah's best interest in the fact that should somebody call with either a threat or calling in with a ransom, yeah. now you've been able to capture that audio.
Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. 
with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right. Cheers, everybody. Cheers to you, Mr. Captain. <laughs> Eventually, the sheriff's department seems to have ruled out, been able to rule out Deborah. Mm-hmm. The State Division of Law Enforcement, or SLED, which is South Carolina's highest investigative agency, got involved in the case by that Saturday. So very quickly in the early stages of the investigation, SLED becomes involved. Their processing of the trailer uncovered a fresh fingerprint on the living room window where they came to believe an abductor entered the trailer. Mm. This was the window that had the screen removed and the curtains torn down. Right. The print was sent off to the FBI, but no match was made. Captain Ford... We got a, now we got two captains in this story. Captain Ford said, quote, we are going under the premise that she was taken from the mobile home. We don't believe she simply wandered off and quote. Do we have a, hold on. Do we have a, on this print, is it female or male? Do we know? Well, there's no match to the fingerprint. Mm-hmm. So we don't know anything about it at this time in, in our investigation. What we do know is that nothing was stolen from the house and there was no sign of a struggle at any place in the trailer itself. Yet Jessica had vanished and it looked more and more like she had been taken right out the front door. So you can kind of picture this, this bearded man with the magic hat figures his way into the living room via the window uh-huh. sneaks into the girl's bedroom, takes the youngest of the three daughters, and then leaves out the front door and in his haste leaves the door open behind him. Or maybe he was born in a barn. Yeah, or he didn't want to put down the child because she could have w- woke up, right, if you put the child down. So it's just leave your car door open or your truck door open, and once you get her out of the front door, you just keep a hold of her, put her into your car or your truck, and then take off. Who cares what happens behind you? And this 
this type of abduction is really one of the rarest of all child abductions, a stranger abduction from within the child's own bedroom. I was trying to find some good numbers on this, some good statistics that when I say good, I mean reliable. And I don't know how reliable the information is that I found. We do know, and we can all agree that it is a very rare thing for not only a a child to be abducted by a stranger, but then take it the step further and say a child abducted in her own home or in his own home. They put the numbers at, at of the child abductions out there that it's roughly about 15, 16% actually occur in the home, which was a lot higher than I thought that I, that I would find, but we've covered some cases here in the garage. Most recently we covered Heather Don church's case from 1991. She was abducted from her home. That was episodes 339 and 340 available for free on the free stitcher app. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of cases that we've not covered, but are very well-known cases are, are that of Polly class in 1993 and Elizabeth Smart in 2002. So it does happen, and it's probably the scariest of circumstances that I could think of. Now, SLED issued a national alert for Jessica that described the missing little girl as white, three foot tall, 32 pounds, with brown shoulder length hair and brown eyes and pierced ears. She has a scar on her upper forehead and a brown birthmark on one of her buttocks. She was last seen wearing a sleeveless pink and white flower t-shirt and white underwear. David, Jessica's father, was very quickly ruled out as a potential suspect in his daughter's abduction. We know that often when a child goes missing, it's usually a custodial deal that, that we're dealing with. Now, he could prove that he was in California at the time that the abduction took place. So he's very, very far away from South Carolina when little Jesse went missing. As for the ex-boyfriend, that's a bit of a different story, though. We have some bickering going on between him and Deborah. He says that he was not involved. He didn't know that the child was missing. But Deborah would stick to her guns for years and years and say, you know, in in my gut of guts and in my heart of hearts, I know that somehow he was involved. I just can't prove it. Well, a couple of tough things here is one, they could set up some kind of sting or ruse to get fingerprints from him. But then you have the argument of, well, of course my fingerprints in there or even on that windowsill because I lived there or I was there often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the searches for little Jesse really came to nothing. A little while after she vanished, Deborah told she she decided to sell her trailer and move away from Lexington County for a time. But she returned after just a few months because she was worried that someone might return the little girl and the child being so young would not be able to find her mom. Now, devastated by her young daughter's abduction, Deborah refused to allow her other children to celebrate Christmas, saying that it just did not seem right to really celebrate anything 
with the young girl being gone. Over the coming years, Jesse's case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted. I could not find the America's Most Wanted episodes, Captain, but I looked up the Unsolved Mysteries, yeah, and it was actually featured with, with three other missing kids stories, missing kids cases. Well, that was a depressing episode. Very depressing. And then I, I looked into each one of their cases, and from what I could find, right, it looks like all four of them are still unsolved. And they still, they remain unsolved mysteries. One of them got close to having some action on it, but the charges were dropped right before it could go to trial. So hopefully that will change in one or all of these cases. In January of 1987, Deborah was flown to Kansas. So we're sitting here just about a half a year later, six months later, roughly in 1987, the mother of this missing little girl she's flown to kansas to look at a young girl who had been found alive and she matches jessica's description down to the scars and some of the dental work now when you're uh, when you're four you don't have much dental work so well, hopefully you don't yeah yeah, yeah. it was not jesse and in fact it was the poor mother she's walking up to you know like the two-way mirror because yeah. you don't want to traumatize the child. You find this kid. Kid doesn't really know who or where she is supposed to go off to. You bring in Deborah to to identify, is this your daughter or not? She, as she's walking up to the two-way mirror, she says she could hear the girl talking and knew immediately it was not her daughter. Right? Can you imagine that? You want to talk about an emotional roller coaster ride? I mean, I, I can't even begin to, to fathom. Yeah, I mean, just think about this. At some point, please come to her and say, we we think we might have found your daughter. We think we might have found Jessica. All by the way, we're going to have to take you there. So now you have this whole preparation. You're going, and, and before you even get a look at her, because that's the moment you're preparing for in your head. And she doesn't even have to get to that moment because she can tell audibly that oh that is not my that is not my child mm -hmm. and then obviously probably is then double confirmed by that by seeing the child well and also hey we think it's a possibility that this is your missing little girl and she matches to the point of the scars you know up to the point of of identifiers on the child as time went on it you know th this case really just kind of drug on and it didn't go really much in the way of finding Jessica or finding a potential suspect. But then we have in 2005, a report by a local TV channel. This is W I S TV 10 news, which has continued to cover Jesse's case. They quote Sheriff Metz. And in the quote says Lexington County Sheriff James Metz says the investigation turned up a person of interest, but never a suspect. He still believes it's a solvable case, but with a sad ending. I don't believe Jessica is alive. I think Jessica was taken for a specific reason. And I think maybe what happened in this case is that things didn't work out the way the abductor thought it was going to work out. 
and got scared and then killed Jessica and then dumped her body here somewhere in Lexington County. Then in 2007, there seemed to be some movement on the case. WIS-TV published a series of articles about Jesse Gutierrez and said there seemed to be some hope. But the first of these articles exposed a feud that early on may have hampered the investigation. If you recall, we said that in the early days of the investigation, Sheriff Metz ordered Deborah's home phone to be tapped. Right. The Sheriff's Department clearly did not hear what they were expecting to hear on calls made on the phone, that the family was somehow involved in the toddler's disappearance. But Sheriff Metz also seems to have forgotten himself, or perhaps he just assumed that the recordings of those phone taps would never be made public because somehow that TV station got their hands on some of these recordings. And one of them backed up what Deb was saying all along that she had always alleged that the sheriff was initially not responsive to her and could possibly have done more to find her child. Mm-hmm. Here's a transcript of, of the call that they played that will show the feud between the sheriff and the, the victim here. Sheriff Metz says, what do you want me to do? Someone's got to hold your hand or be out working. And Deborah says, listen here, I don't need you to hold my hand, and I, I don't need you to get smart with me either. Sheriff Metz responds, I'm not going to get smart with you, but you're not going to get smart with me either, lady. I've been up all night long working on your case, and I don't need your smart mouth. Deborah replies, oh, really? Metz says, no. Gutierrez then says, when I ask you questions, I need answers. The sheriff responds, well, we'll give you answers when we got answers to give. Now, you mess with me, and I'll pull all my people off, and we'll go home and go to bed and forget about your case. Deborah says, you mean to tell me that if I mess with you, you will pull all of your people off this case and go home and forget about my child? Right. That's, it's not about her or the case. It's about this little girl. The sheriff replies, that's right. Deborah then says, what about the public that elected you to be in this office? And Metz replies, they can elect me or not elect me because I don't really give a damn what they do. Deborah says, I understand those detectives are tired, tired because so am I. That's my youngin. And then the sheriff says, I know that's your youngin, ma'am. And we're trying to do everything to try and help you. Um, that's a shitty thing to say, but it, Sometimes, look, there's not much to go off of here, right? It's not like we have a mountain of evidence. And I know, like, especially in in missing person cases, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Tyler Davis case, for example. Brittany Davis is frustrated with detectives. They're frustrated with her. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, they both want to find um, Tyler. But there's no information that they can go off of every turn that they go down, turn left, turn right. There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. And so she's frustrated. They're fr- frustrated. And I'm sure there's things in that case that the detectives have said to Brittany that they wish they could take back. 
Yeah, and in this case here, I mean, I'm I'm not looking to go out of my way to defend Sheriff Metz, but what I think we're 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 getting a snippet of a of a bigger conversation. Well, it's a shitty thing to say. I mean, we both agree. Oh, horrible. But, you know, horrible. It's but, a piece of shit thing to say. But I also want to point out here, what we have going on from my observation is this. We have a, a woman who who is tired. She's scared. She's afraid for her daughter. She's probably been up for days by this point. But on the flip side of that, we have a sheriff and his detectives who have very likely been working around the clock. They've been up for a very long time at this point as well. And we have a mother saying, look, I want some answers. And he's saying, we, we don't have anything. We don't have any information for you. We don't have anything. We don't have any leads or nothing. And she's saying, well, that's because you're not doing a good enough job. And we got this team of people working around the clock and, and now you go and the point person is going, we've been working our asses off here. It's not, there's just nothing to go on. And it's not because we're not doing a good enough job. We're trying our hearts out. And when you have people that are tired and they're frustrated, they say things that they often don't mean. And I think that that's probably what we have here. So I'm going to give the sheriff a little bit of a, of the benefit of the doubt this is coming from someone myself who, look, I've never been a sheriff, and I understand that you're an elected official. You should carry yourself and conduct yourself as such at all times, regardless of the situation. But I'm also a dude that's worked shifts that, that you wouldn't believe. I, I mean, one time I worked a shift that was 37 hours long, and I was not a very pleasant person to be around after about the 25-hour mark. So I get, I get it a little bit. Let's talk how, about how, how many hours did you say? Several times in in my in my last job, I worked shifts that were over thirty hours. Mm. Now, let's get to this suspect or this person of interest or whatever you want to call him. I'm going to call this guy a suspect, even though in that one interview, Metz didn't refer to him as such. A story in the 2007 series that was on that WIS TV entitled 21 year old case could move to court with solicitors approval before we move on just to clear up any confusion the solicitor in south carolina is basically your district attorney mm -hmm. okay so if you hear me say solicitor think of district attorney i might even call him district attorney yeah, just call him district attorney from now well that's going to be tough because all of my notes say solicitor well, <laughs> well um, if you don't do this i'm going to make you work a 36 hour shift apparently deborah and sheriff metz had finally been able to agree on something and that was that there was significant evidence to charge a suspect in this case this was someone who had been the prime suspect ever since uh, just a few days or a few weeks into this abduction. But the sheriff's department had not been able to convince the Lexington County district attorney or solicitor, Donnie Myers, that there was sufficient evidence to make charges stick. So who is this guy? This is a West Columbia, South Carolina man. He's been described only as a, an acquaintance of the family or in some circles, even maybe a, a family friend in, in, in some releases. His name is not out there in the public domain, and he's never been named by either the sheriff or Deborah Gutierrez. 
And I also want to point something else out too, as we're moving along in this case too, the the ex-boyfriend's name has never been publicly stated either. But what we have here, Captain, is 10 weeks after Jesse disappeared, this man, well, he ended up behind bars. According to the state newspaper, he stole a van in Lexington County. There's a new shirt for you. Beware, ban the stolen van and drove to (laughs) North Carolina. I think I've created enough. Where he broke into a home and raped a woman. Oh, God. He was charged and later convicted and he was sent to prison. Now, here's where the story of this guy becomes relevant. While in prison, the now convicted rapist told a cellmate that he had kidnapped a girl in Lexington County, South Carolina, and that he was wearing a tall cowboy hat when he did it. This could explain the magic hat that little Becky had seen in the dark. The convicted rapist claimed to have buried the girl in a landfill in Lexington County. The cellmate relayed this information to authorities and sent a letter to Deborah explaining what his cellmate told him. Now the clincher, this convicted rapist, his fingerprints were a match to the one that was found on the window at the Gutierrez home. A weeks-long search of the landfill in Lexington County turned up nothing. According to the state newspaper, investigators questioned the rapist, now a suspect in the abduction of Jesse, multiple times about the child's abduction. He offered to talk about the case in exchange for immunity. But prosecutors denied his offer. As a result, this guy shut down. He's going to talk about it no more. So he wanted immunity for the whole thing. I'll That's tell you what it looks like. I'll tell you what happened. Oh, you have my fingerprint by the way. But I'm going to tell you everything, but I want you to then tell me it's okay and I'm not going to be charged with anything. Sheriff Metz, his office confirmed all of these details to the public. The suspect was released from prison after serving out his sentence. I've seen a few different numbers thrown out there, but it looks like he served about 10 or 11 years. At some point, he fails to register as a sex offender in South Carolina as required. His last known address, I'm not going to give the actual address, was in Wake Forest. But this was uh, at least 10 years ago. Deborah Gutierrez has made a couple of other claims about this suspect that are a little harder to wrap one's head around. One was that she felt that this suspect and her ex-boyfriend, the one she had the gut feeling about, knew each other. This family acquaintance and the ex-boyfriend, Gutierrez kicked out days before Jesse's disappearance, they denied knowing one another. However, Deborah says that she... She knows that the two actually met at a Waffle House several months before Jesse disappeared. Now, there's no way to know whether this is true or whether it even matters. Uh, Another strange thing, Deborah has repeatedly claimed that she located fibers. This is an odd story here. That she located fibers related to her missing daughter in an abandoned car that belonged to the suspect. I don't know how this comes about 
Right. Did she? So now we have a fingerprint and we have possible fibers that this suspect owned that vehicle. And now we believe that this suspect also knew uh, her ex. That's Deborah's claims. That, that the two knew one another and that Deborah found fibers that would be connected to her missing daughter in this suspect's vehicle. But to be quite frank here, there's nowhere that, that says that these fibers were reviewed and compared in a laboratory somewhere by people that are educated to do so. This is just, a, a one poor grieving mother who right, has right. found what she believes might be possible evidence. It's it's tough too because if she sees these, whatever they are, and they, she goes, "Oh, that's that's from my daughter." It's like you want to believe her, but you also know that she's in extreme amount of pain. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, you have a suspect that again, well, let's not even call suspect. We have his fingerprint. There's no reason for his fingerprint to be there. Right. So, well, that's the problem. Why aren't they charging this guy with abduction? Yeah. And I think that that is Deborah's that, that, I mean, that is where I know he's a piece of shit. That's been her, her second concern for almost the entirety of her life. Her first concern is finding her daughter. Her second concern is why, when we have this guy that, that Sheriff Metz, let's keep in mind, Deborah and Sheriff Metz didn't get along. They didn't see eye to eye on many things. Right. They both publicly have stated, this is our guy. We believe that we can solve this case. We believe that we know who did it. We believe that we knew who did it fairly quickly into the investigation. However, the solicitor slash the district attorney says, we don't have enough evidence to charge this individual. So something we talked about a little bit on off the record was, okay, this fingerprint. Well, is there a reasonable explanation for why there is this fingerprint there? Or can it be explained away at least to a point where it confuses a jury enough that they don't get a conviction of this guy? I think what we have here, Captain, is I think that we have a guy that was sitting in prison and was going to be there for quite some time, 10, 11 years, what have you. And I think that they thought that they, now that they had honed in on who it was or who they believed it was, that they could build a case with significant evidence against this guy in the time period where this guy is locked up. He can't hurt anybody. He's not going anywhere. The problem is past that fingerprint that's found by sled that that's a, a legit investigative agency. The fibers in the car don't mean anything if I found them or if Deborah found them or if you found them. We need somebody to, to tell us, hey, right. these are connected to this case and it's connected to the victim and it's connected to the suspect. But yeah. we don't have that. Yeah, but law enforcement could do those tests. Yes. Yes, unless now they worried that the, the scene, the vehicle was contaminated by right. the victim's mother. Mm-hmm. It, it gets very complicated very quickly and you can see how this is stacking up really against Deborah and against the case for her daughter rather than against the guy that's sitting in prison. And by the time he gets released, they've not collected any more evidence against this guy. I think the problem that we have here, the major, major problem 
is we know how difficult it is to get a conviction in a no body case. Yeah, but we don't have to get a conviction of murder. That's true. We can get a conviction of the fact that we we know we have an eyewitness um, that may not may not be able to put that person at the scene because she didn't know that person. It was in the dark, but the fingerprint puts you there, and we know that the child was abducted. So what what do kidnap charges? Uh, how many years can he spend in jail over kidnap charges? Right. And chances are, if you go ahead and charge him with it. And then you offer him a deal, you know, maybe he spends half that time in jail, but that's on top of the charges, the rape charges he's already in jail for. I mean, this is a scumbag piece of shit, dude, that needs to be behind bars, you know, because all he's going to do. Okay. We know that he's willing to kidnap children and we know he's a rapist. Is he raping children? Is he killing children? I mean, this, this is a bad dude. Well, and I thought about that because the the statement from the sheriff that really stands out to me is we believe we know who did this. We believe that Jesse was abducted for a specific reason. And when things didn't go the way that the abductor thought that they would work out, he got scared, he killed her, and he dumped her somewhere in Lexington County. That whole statement makes me it really made me wonder, okay, what would that specific reason be? Now that doesn't mean that law enforcement knows what that specific reason was, but when we look at it, I thought, okay, would it have been for a ransom? Well, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to abduct a child from, from a mobile home where we have only one parent who's trying to provide for four, there doesn't seem to be much money to pay a ransom is what I'm pointing out there with the, with the family situation. And then I've seen several cases where unfortunately kids are harmed, whether it be abducted or murdered because there's some kind of debt that was, was unpaid or some kind of bad drug dealings going on between an adult male and the eventual offender. Hmm. The problem with that is the boyfriend's been removed from the home. It seems like it, it seems like a really dumb idea to if you're going to take the child for some unpaid debt or for some kind of ransom against the boyfriend. Mm-hmm. It seems like you've you've created a there's a whole degree of separation that doesn't seem like it would play out the way that you wanted it to. So with the with the rape charges, if in fact this is our guy and I have no problem saying that I believe that it is very much the guy because I I put my faith in the evidence that was collected. There's the, a fingerprint and there's no reason for him to be there. Well, not only that, we have a mother who says, look, I, I cleaned the home inside and out regularly. That She says that that print would have been a new print. That whoever took her daughter came in through that window, left their print, and she says that with confidence because she says I cleaned that same area just shortly before the abduction again it's a grieving mother and you go Nick take it with a grain of salt however what we have here is sled took that evidence they sent it off to the FBI it was labeled by one of the agencies or both as a fresh print a fresh print right the experts agree 
that it was a relatively new print. So not only do you have to explain away why your fingerprint was on that in that area that was used to gain access to the home, you have to explain why it was there in a short time frame that's all centered around the abduction of a child. Well, and what pisses me off, and, and you know this because we covered so many cases, there's there's a lot of missing person cases where there's just there's just nothing there, you know. And and this is abduction case. It's a little different, but the, again, you take away that uh, fingerprint, we have nothing there. Mm-hmm. We don't even have a time period of when this individual. I mean, a time period within an hour or two. We don't have. We have from midnight till eight o'clock in the morning. We, we don't know, and we don't know what the motivation would be for this individual to take this girl, mm-hmm. and it's. But there's so many cases with, with the rape charge. My fear is that it that it's sexually Sexual, motivated yeah, yes. crime. What a dirt bag! Mm. No, but the, but the thing is, is okay. So here's a case that we have a fingerprint. Now we have a possible connection between this individual and her ex. We possibly have these fibers that need to be tested. Again, could be contaminated because she collected them. But it's just so sad that we have so many things pointing us to having this case be solved and they can't get it done. Yeah, and I think what you have here too is, look, there might have been some missteps very early on by the Sheriff's Department, but we also stated that SLED was brought in by that Saturday. This is that state's top investigative agency. And we've also referenced the FBI a couple of times in this very short case, right? It's, it's not short in time wise, but right, right. it's short in our, in our garage time here today. So you have, I think, very capable agencies looking into this case and to the credit of the sheriff's office, that's the same sheriff's office that took down, that took down Larry Gene Bell, who we discussed on this show in our episode titled Last Will and Testament, episode 263. Larry Gene Bell was being, this was a manhunt. Well, it was an investigation that led to a short manhunt, but it was the Sheriff's Department, it was SLED, it was the FBI all working together against this guy. This is one of the most sadistic, despicable he had he had a, a very bizarre way of mentally torturing his victims and that was to have them write a goodbye letter to to their family before he killed them so this is this is agencies that are used to high profile complicated cases so i don't think that that's the situation here i think that what we have is unfortunately there just is not a lot of evidence. And as soon as this guy says, Oh, you're taking immunity off of the table. I'm no longer willing to talk. Mm -hmm. But now that makes me wonder about the ex-boyfriend. What did this suspect have to say? Was it that I gave the girl off to the ex-boyfriend? What if they did know each other? That's, that's the tricky part in here too, captain, where Mm -hmm. we have, do we have two suspects? Or do we have one? Well, and again, I, I think there's a lot of things that you can't prove. But you, if there was a connection between these two individuals, I think there would be a way to do so, even if it's just through um, 
you know, hearsay, even people just going, yeah, I, I've saw them hanging out before. Well, and I'll give the ex-boyfriend a little credit because remember both men claim they, both men deny ever knowing each other. And here, here's the thing, unless the ex-boyfriend is involved somehow in this disappearance, in this abduction, he has no reason to deny knowing this other man if he in fact did know him. So I, 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 I don't know. I can't, I can't say that they didn't know one another, but because one thing that I was really trying to think about in this case, and we, we know this happens unfortunately in, in the real world here where often bad people will get a hold of some information. They get a hold of some information that they it doesn't matter that they, in the grand scheme of things, it does matter, but it doesn't matter at the time that they hear it because people don't know that they're bad people with bad intentions. I thought, is there a chance that these two knew each other? And it's as simple of a story as the ex-boyfriend goes, yeah, she kicked me out, man. She kicked me out. I've been out. I've been outdoors for days now. Right. And now this, this, this pervert, this rapist goes, oh, we have a we have a house full of that's full of just a woman and children. Well, that's an easy target. There's nobody and, there right, to fight yeah. me off in the middle of nowhere, and it's and yeah, it's a trailer. But then again, the problem with that is then why would the boyfriend deny knowing this man if if that's what in fact went down? I I don't think that that's likely because I think that if the ex boyfriend had did know the guy and did not have any involvement in the abduction, he would want to be helpful to the investigation and to this poor family. And I keep going back to the vague description of our suspect that was given by that poor frightened girl so many years ago. And Becky in recent years has said in interviews, she's still scared about that night. And of course she has regrets that she didn't run to her mom or scream or cry out for help. And unfortunately, that's something that she's going to have to live with. That's a burden that she's going to have to carry for the rest of her days. But I keep going back to her vague description of the bearded man with the magic hat. And one thing she has said in recent interviews is that still to this day, she sees that face when she lies in bed at night. She sees that face over and over and over again. That leads me to believe one of two things, either because she was so scared that she created some version of this face and some version of these events that may not be 100% spot on and real, or she does remember the face just as it is. And just as she saw it that night. And if that would be the case, I then say, well, why have we not heard all these years later from now an adult woman who can articulate what she saw that night and give us a better description of that man and his face? And I think what we have here, Captain, is a situation where maybe the face that she remembers seeing that night matches up with the suspect that they can't bring to trial. In an interview with the state, Deborah Gutierrez said the following. I've got a kid that's lost in the dark. I'm not going to stop searching for my kid. My baby's lost somewhere in the dark, Gutierrez said, her voice cracking. And I'm not going to stop until I find her.
right, make sure you get your pre-order in of the new t-shirt, Ban the Tan Sedan. And thank you all for joining us here in the garage this week. Join us back here next week. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 